Well, welcome back to the Hunger for Knowledge. We have a, a special guest today, someone I, I know very well. Um, we're here with Will, of course. What's up, people? Um, my dad is here. His name is Perry Tibbins. Um, he has a very, a very unique view on the subject we're going to talk about today. In-person view of what's going on in a situation that's happening all over the world. So um, he's going. We're going to talk about. He was at visit a refugee camp in Greece. Um, a lot of the people that are in that refugee camps are results of the foreign policy of America and many other things. But the major contributor is the foreign policy of America. So I'm going to let him uh, just say hello, and he's going to kind of go into how he got to the point where he was visiting the refugee camp. Hi, my name is Perry. And um, about five years ago, I had a tragic event in my life and kind of changed things around. So um, at that point, my other son, Andrew, and his wife felt called there, and they are all Christians and felt called to be missionaries in Guatemala. So they went down there working for an organization that, uh, that would deliver food to multiple orphanages, about 50 orphanages within a 50-mile radius of Guatemala City. So I went there to visit him, and of course I was there for almost two weeks. So his job didn't start stop, so I went along on all the visits to all the orphanages, and we went to this one orphanage that was his their favorite place, and it happened to be my favorite place. Um, it was a really, really beautiful, beautiful home and a rare place in that it was very, very well run, and the people running the home, not that there aren't lots of them, but... These people were really, really a caring family, really taking care of these kids. It housed about 75 kids. And at the time we went down there, my I happened to be an artist, and my son mentioned that I had just painted uh, two murals at my church, large-scale murals at my church. So I'm not necessarily good with little kids, and there were a lot of little kids there. So when I went down there and visited, I didn't know what else to do. So I just started drawing pictures of all these little kids, and they all went nuts, and then the... Um, the director named Daniel of the facility asked, had a mural in his house and showed it to me and said, would you come down here and paint murals? And I said, oh, sure. You know, you know how that goes. Oh, sure. I'll come down, you know. So anyway, I went home and, um, and then uh, the next year uh, my church went down and Andrew and his family were there at that point. And uh, so I decided to go along with the church and they went to a place and we built, uh, built a wall somewhere and I had planned to stay an extra week so I could visit with my son. Well, between the time I bought my tickets and the time I went, my, there was a fallout with my son and the organization he went with, and they came home. So now, there I was going to Guatemala for a week with no place to go. But they were at my house, by the way. Yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> anyway. Well, they were back in the U.S. Right, right. So anyway, and, and when I had gone down the first time, that was my first trip out of the country. And I went by myself. I had never been out of the country. It was a little scary, but yeah. I did it anyway. So um, so the, uh, they went, as they were saying goodbye, they went to this home and told Daniel that, you know, they were leaving and they will miss them and all that. And, and um, uh, mentioned that I was coming down there was going to come down there and didn't have any place to go. And Daniel said, well, he can come and stay here. So um, Andrew told me that, and I was pretty excited about that. And uh, so um, I went down with my group, and um, and uh, when I did, um, 
Dan was supposed to pick me up on a Monday morning or Sunday afternoon, and he was he was mandated to go to court over one of the one of the uh, kids in the home, and all of a sudden I was a day with no place to go. I had Monday and I had to wait till the end of the day, and I really didn't know my way around very well. So that Sunday, um, before I was supposed to meet. And the group and my people, they were all upset that I was like, had no place to go. But I met this, this guy was a substitute minister at the, um, at the church that we went on that Sunday. His name was Rolando and he preached. And when he came, was introduced to me and the other people in my group, for whatever reason, they, I'm the artist type. So anyway, he, they said, oh, this guy paints and does all this stuff. And they said, he said, really, I have this great organization you should work for. You know, you got to do this. You got to do that. So this is my second trip to Guatemala. I'm not sure I'm ever coming yeah, back. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm not interested. in it. This was like August and I was there in like, I don't know, June. I said, I can't come back to Guatemala in like three months. <laughs> I mean, you know, I can't do that. Yeah. But um, so anyway, so then we found out that I was going to be all by myself for the whole day Monday. And Rolanda said, I'll fix that. I'll come and take you. So he took me for a tour of the city. Guatemala City, which was really awesome. We we actually connected pretty nicely. And he took me to this one home where um, it actually was a church um, where they had um, put on what was what is called what it's the organizations of Fenicos and, and what they put on was what they call IMR camps. And what they are is they're basically art therapy for a week for um, kids that are in these homes, which are. 95% physically, sexually, and mentally abused kids that have been removed from their parents' homes. Mm -hmm. So um, he showed me the mural that this organization had done as part of these one of these camps, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And he said, well, you're coming. I said, I can't come to Guatemala in three months. He said, sure you can. He says, they closed the registration, but let me call the person who runs it. So all of a sudden, three months later, I'm back in Guatemala and doing this doing this art camp. And I absolutely loved it, loved working with the kids, and continued to go back. I've been eight times now in five years, and just had it's an amazing experience. The kids are awesome. It's just really, really satisfying. But anyway, which brings us to this past year. The one guy that I, you, all the homes are usually owned or sponsored or financed by someone out of the country, mostly Americans. So the guy that was in charge of the camp that I used to go to all the time, for whatever reason, he and I just don't hit it off. Well, he had been giving me a hard time the last time I went there, and I was prepared to go there again. I had all my plans made, and basically I always feel like I've been called to go. You know, I just feel like I've been called by a Lord to go and do this. I mean, that's why I go. You know, other I mean, I have a great time, but that's why I go. Mm -hmm. And so this time I just... I don't know. I just wasn't feeling. I just was assuming that I was supposed to go there. Had my plans all made. Just hadn't bought the tickets. Hadn't done anything. And my wife and I were sitting there talking. And I was, you know, saying I'm kind of bummed because this guy, you know, was giving me a hard time and he was letting me come. But I, it just was uncomfortable. Yeah. And she says, well, you know, you've been doing all this stuff in Guatemala. You've seen Guatemala everywhere. I said, why don't you just go somewhere else? And I said, well, I don't know. I never really thought about it. So I proceeded to go on the internet and look for other places to go. Well, that was a mistake because you go on the internet and look for missionary opportunities and there's like 
37,000 to pick yeah. from, yeah. you know, and yeah. I said, I can't, I can't pick. I, w- I wouldn't even know what to pick. God would have to lead me in that direction for me to even feel. And I wanted to do something that had to do with art because of my art experience. Um, at that point, I was kind of considered an art therapist, although I didn't really go to school for that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I started looking. I said, I just can't. I, I said, I don't even know where to begin. Hmm. I said, I'm just going to have to. I already have the plans made. I'm just going to go ahead and go with this trip. And then we'll see about next year. So. That was on a Friday, and Monday morning, our church put, prints a bulletin that goes into, you know, that goes over the internet every year, and there in the bulletin, for the first time, our, not our church specifically, but our denomination, was planning a trip to Greece to work in the refugee camp. So, I said, I guess is this what I'm supposed to do? So, I committed to doing that. I had to go through uh, nine uh Course nine preparation courses in order to prepare to go, and uh, on October sixteenth, uh, I believe, I headed to Greece to work in a refugee camp for two weeks. The name of the refugee camp is Moria, and it is on the island of Lesbos, which is on the which is off the eastern coast of Greece. Um, it's a community of about twenty five thousand people. It's a pretty big island. They have three or four decent sized cities. But most of them are small villages. Uh, but it's a it's a big island. So anyway, went over there. So yeah. The population's twenty five thousand of of the of island island population. Yes, yes, that's what I'm asking. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The the actual population of the yeah. island. Okay. Yes. So their primary source of income is olives. That's the whole island grows olives. That's what they do pretty much. So anyway, so um, the one lady who was organizing the whole thing, she had been there before in February, and. Um, she was the one who kind of set this all up. And when she had been there, there were, I think she said, 7,000 refugees in this camp. Uh, keep in mind that the camp that was originally constructed by the Greek government was built for 2,500 refugees. So now you've already got three times, you know, whatever. So anyway, so we went not really knowing what we were going to get into. We got there. Um, we didn't stay on the campsite. Well, we couldn't. It would have been too dangerous. So we weren't allowed to keep stay at the camp. There was too much. Uh, so we stayed about about 10 miles away in a small town. And um, the first day we went there, um, we went there and there were just, wow. I mean, there's no words to express. It was just so crowded. There were just people everywhere. Uh, you went in through a gate. The whole community was surrounded by a gate, by a by a chain link fence with barbed wire at the top, not necessarily to keep them in, but to keep people out. Um, they were free to go. They could go. They could leave the camp whenever they wanted. But um, except for the three, there were three. I guess I would say cordoned off sections of the camp. One was called. One was for single adult men. One was for unac- unaccompanied young boys which meant boys that were there were on their own with no with parents, with no parents. Yeah. and they were between the ages of roughly 12 and 18 and then there was another section that was for um, women uh, women with small children but basically unmarried women and that it's a bad term but not really unmarried that would mean women whose husbands had been killed mm. or, or unmarried women yeah. or women with children you know women with children but it was strictly for them and that was cordoned off for obvious reasons 
Uh, and the single men's section was just trying to corral, I don't know, I don't want to say corruption, but corral, corral the out, rowdiest group into one area. Mm. Um, so anyway, we went in and there were, I don't know, I think my experience was a little unique in that if you know that I'm Rob's dad, you know I'm not exactly a young guy. So I'm almost I'm almost 70 years old. And the average age of, there were about 125 people running, working in the camp, all volunteers, primarily from the U.S. and the Netherlands, but there were from other countries also, a couple of guys from the U.K., you know, just different, it just depended on where you volunteered. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so, um, but all these, all these people, the average kids, person's age in that camp, running, running the camp and volunteering, doing, volunteering during all this was about 20 years old. Mm-hmm. When, and once you got to about 25 out of that hundred and then the group of out of 125 you might have had 20 people over the age of say 25 to 35 and over the age of 60 there were three people mm-hmm. myself included so you had a lot of people there that were and i'm not criticizing youth at all but ha- didn't have a lot of life experience and were mm-hmm. Well, they're twenty in, years immature. old. Immature. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I had a little bit of. A, I think I had a little bit of un, a unique perspective from that standpoint. Yeah. So Absolutely. anyway, so you went into this room, you walk in, and everything, everything, every place you work in in the facility is under lock and key. And when I say lock and key, I mean a padlock, a door lock, and another padlock. That's how extensive the security was. So we went in and we each got assignments. And my first assignment was to go work in the um, warehouse where they went, where they stored all the stuff that came in from all over the world as, you know, for, donations. The, for the camp. Yeah, mm-hmm. donations. What part of it, and they would get just, what was sad is, it's kind of like when somebody gives something to the reuse it shop, you know, you'll have the people that'll be conscientious and they'll give stuff. But then you have people that'll give stuff that should have been thrown in the trash yeah, and yeah. give it anyway, thinking, yeah. I don't know what they're thinking. Well, you'd have to have two guys just sorting through all the stuff that was given, and you'd have to throw out 25% of what was given because it was useless. It was useless yeah. So that, you know, so the, the the warehouse was really, really big, and it was run by uh, basically three women, and uh, they had... Um, they had I so think, were the the volunteers other than your group were they there for longer periods of time or was everybody there first like it was a revolving door of volunteers that were there like a week there were there were it was the group was divided okay mm. you had people there that were there for six months you had people there that were there for three months you had people that were there for a week and you had people there for it depends on the organization that we worked for was called euro relief okay. there are other organizations there but we technically worked for Euro Relief. Mm-hmm. We were our own group, but we worked for Euro Relief. They were in charge of uh, providing tents, you know, living quarters, food, water for the refugees, and basically um, tracking the refugees as they as they came in. Every time a refugee came was was brought into the country, they received a document which was simply called papers. And that document would have a number for them, like a security number, like a social security mm-hmm. number, along with their picture. And then if they were women, if they were children, then the children's pictures would be attached to the woman's papers. 
not to the man. So that was what that's that was the most valuable piece of paper they got. So anyway, we worked in the warehouse and there were six refugee women that worked there uh, and they volunteered there and their uh, payment for volunteering there was they would get to go through the clothing and pick clothing out. And when I say clothing, don't think of it like you think of the stores here. Think of a giant room and here's a pile of clothes for like one-year-olds. Here's a pile of clothes yeah. for five-year-olds. It's just this great big jumbled pile of clothes, you know, and you walk through and you just get, you don't get to pick. You just get you here. Just get this, something, is what, yeah. this is what you get. Yeah. So anyway, I worked there and the women were real nice. And then that was my first, which I knew about this, but I have a tendency to necess- not necessarily follow the rules all the time. Uh, mm. Not anything bad, just I kind of go, go off on a little tangent every once in a while. Yeah. So anyway, I'm an artist, and when I paint, I paint from my photographs that I take. I take hundreds, thousands of photographs. So I was all excited about taking well photographs, and then I got there and found out that you were not allowed the, the government would not allow you to take any photographs inside the camp or of any of the refugees unless they've it was like as in to the point that and I did get photographs but very very few but to the point that I guess it was the week or maybe two weeks before I was there someone was caught taking photographs and, and put in jail wow. for taking photographs so anyway so I did get some pictures of the girls at, at the warehouse. They were very, they were very, very shy. One girl covered her face because she didn't want to be seen. Mm-hmm. And that was my first day's experience. And that was, that was not bad. I mean, I was kind of like what I was expecting. And then the next two night, two days, I worked night shift. Well, night shift was involved basically staying up all night from, from uh, 12 to eight at night until the morning. And your job, your only job was to walk around the camp every hour and double check to make sure everything was still locked. The gates on the the gates on the restricted communities for the for the different uh, refugees, all the your all the gates for all the supplies, everything. And there was actually, this is how extensive it was. There was actually a separate six foot wide fenced in area that was a protected escape route specifically for all the volunteers in case anything went south hmm. that was locked and under lock and key. They changed the locks every so often because people would come and break into the locks, break the locks and destroy them. They'd have to start all over again. So then that was my, that was our job. Two of us did it. And then this next job was to, in the morning we would get deliveries of, um, of uh, water and baked goods. And at this point, I'm pretty taken aback by the whole, just overwhelmed and by the sadness of the whole situation. It was just, so then reality started to set in. So then we would take, water would get delivered in these, uh, on these four by four um, pallets, be stacked like maybe four, you know, they're big bottles stacked maybe four high. And then you would have to unload them. And, which was under guard, and you would unload them and put them inside the locked area. As you were putting in there, there was a card, there was a piece of cardboard in between each layer, and then of course a pallet on the bottom. Well, as soon as you knew, as soon as people saw that they were coming, you had people not fighting, but 
pushing their ways, hoping they could get a piece of cardboard to sleep on. Hmm. This stupid piece of cardboard. Mm. Okay. And then we had to be very careful of the pallets because the pallets were given out, were portioned out based on need because they would be used to put the tents on top of. So because the tents were set on the ground so that they wouldn't get, you know, wouldn't get wet. So anyway, so that was the first reality check. So I did that for two nights. And then the next night, uh, which was that, then the rest of it was basically how the rest of my time went. And I would work either day shift or evening shift, which was five to five to t- five to eleven. And um, the first couple of days, my primary uh, primary uh, job was to a census report, a, cons- a census of who's there. Yeah. Which sounds really stupid, but what they did is, I mean, you have to understand they had this giant map of the whole community, and on this map they have all these little figures for tents, and all these tents have numbers on them yeah. on the paper. So every day you would have to go out and verify that that tent, tent number 37 is where is actually where it is on the map, that there isn't two tents next to 37 that didn't exist before, or the 37 didn't move over here, or that somebody painted over 37 with another number. And then you would have to go into the tent and, and knock on the tent and ask whoever was inside to, to provide their papers to verify that. Who was, who was ever assigned to the tent was actually the person, people living there. Yeah. Now, the reason for that is, and it had to be done constantly because it was constantly changing. Mm-hmm. The reason it was constantly changing was because um, the people that came from, that were coming to the refugee camp were actually coming from Turkey, which in Turkey was actually visible. You could see the border of Turkey from the island. That's how close it was. It was uh-huh. the Aegean Sea and it was that close. And the a, Turkey was kind of like the, the the closest point to Greece. So everyone from all the other countries that were having problems where these people were fleeing from floated it came to came to Turkey to get into you know to get to get there to pay the pay the uh, traffickers or the smugglers for boats or whatever to smuggle them in. And you would have uh, approximately thirty boats coming in every single day. They were where they came in was restricted, so I never saw that. We weren't allowed. And out of those thirty boats, anywhere one or two of those boats would not make it. So then you had typically anywhere from thirty to sixty people drowning every single day wow. because they could not they just didn't make it. Hmm. So anyway, so that's where all these people came from. So now well, so they came from Turkey, but they were funneling it through other. Co- they were, they were fu- coming from other countries, right, funneling Turkey. through Turkey. Yeah, they weren't. There weren't people. They weren't people from Turkey. Right. They were Afghans. There were people from Afghan, which at the time I was there, that was the primary source. The people from Iran, people from Pakistan, people from the Congo. So and other countries Syria, too. Yeah, Syria. Somalia. Yeah, Syria. So there were you know all over the place. Yeah. So they would come in. So anyway. That's why this would be so crazy. Mm-hmm. And the only way these people, these people needed the papers. So they, at this point, they were registered as refugees, which means they didn't even have an app- application. Citizenship? Uh, no, not citizenship for uh, asylum status. Mm-hmm. Asylum status, yeah. which was the next step. Yeah. So the idea was that these people were supposed to be there for approximately 30 to 90 days in order and then move on. So I would do this. I did this three days in a row and you'd have people that would 
sell their tent to somebody else. And you have to understand the tent situation. You had tents that were like pup tents. And then you had tents that were like maybe eight for eight people. And then the pup tents that usually slept to probably had three three people in it. The tents that had were built for five, for eight might have 10, 12, 14 people living. And now understand, this is a tent. We think of tent as, okay, we're going camping and we sleep in the tent. Oh, no, 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 no. This is, this is where they lived. Yeah. They lived in this tent. All their belongings were there. They cooked in this tent. So now just imagine a tent that is housing 10 people with clothes, food, cooking utensils, they're all their belongings, yeah. all crowded into this one tent. And if you got a tent like that, you were lucky. So anyway, so you were constantly updating this refugee list. And then on top of that, which complicated it, there were no interpreters. So, hmm. and I don't speak Arabic, you know, hmm. and not Is many of the, the people. primary did, language? That would be, that was the communication language, yeah. Hmm. And so what you would have to rely on, you would, and there would be plenty of refugees. Primarily the young people were there. And they would they would be the ones you'd go to because they would be learning English because they're learning English because they want to get out of there and they want to be able to, you know, communicate and get get somewhere. Yeah. So they you know, and you always had somebody that would help you out. And then you'd have people that would be confused and wouldn't understand. And as soon as you get in a tent, I would say fifty percent of the time the people would be upset because you are you're wearing a badge that says you're a relief. And as soon as they see that, they're scared. Because they think you're there to reprimand them, mm -hmm. throw them out, do something to them other than what you're there for. Then you have to explain to them why they're why you're there, and then you then you move on. How did you go about doing that without like um, interpreters? It was tough. I imagine it was yeah. very tough, and you just had to rely on somebody stepping up to the plate. And you would, you would, I would, you know, most of the time you had somebody, and every and usually everybody would cooperate. But I mean. It was, it was a lot. Of, it was a lot of work. So, and it was funny because then you would find people, and our, our our map would have like notes on it. Find out this tent. These people don't belong in this tent. Check, make sure they're there. These people had this tent. We don't know where it is. And so, I'm old school. I'm very old school. I do things the old way. So I'm like taking this map and I'm writing all the new yeah. numbers in and doing all this stuff and making notes and all this stuff. And all these other young kids, the other people, all these young kids didn't know any better. So they said, go check it. Well, they'd go check it. They wouldn't bother to make notes or, or do anything. And they and so the first day, the first day that I did it, there was two places, I guess two people, two couples that they had tents that they wanted to return because they got moved into a larger tent and hadn't returned their... So I came back and I had the tents. And they were like, How'd you do that? They actually gave you the tent? I said, well, yeah, I asked for it. Yeah. Well, what I didn't understand is, you have to understand in the culture that I, in the all these cultures that I'm at, I am the persona of respect. In other words, th their culture teaches you anybody that is elderly looking and with a beard is, is I don't know, you know, of, of, of somebody you Someone respect to consider, yeah. and, and you do not lie to. So I so all of a sudden I got on these, so then I got the the duty of doing all the, so I did that for a couple of couple of two or three four days, and it was it was interesting. Uh, you have to understand where these people come from. Um, I think I know that my 
perception or my mindset was that I was going to come and find all these poverty stricken people, you know, starving, whatever. And that is totally wrong, completely wrong. Those people never even make it to the island. They're still, if they're in that position, they're lucky if they live because they have no way to escape. These are all people of lower to upper income that could afford to put money together to to pay the smugglers to get them into the country. Hmm. And they gave up everything. I met a, I met a really nice family. And I, I mean, it's not hard to judge. You're looking at these. It's a family, husband, a wife, four kids, all nice clothes, you know, well-groomed. You could just tell professional. She was a teacher. He was a businessman. They left a home, their own home, two cars, in other words, so a very nice lifestyle, and paid smugglers to bring them to the island where they live in a tent made for six people. Wow. So now you... Where and were they, they from? They were from Afghanistan. Now, that being said, so now they're... I forget what they were asking for. They were asking for something. And part of the hard part of this job is, as I'm inventorying these people, everybody's asking for something. Yeah. You know, I need a bigger tent. Can I have some cardboard? Can I have some water? Can I have this? Well, the only thing you could say was no. And that got very, very hard. Because you're looking at these people and all you can say is no. So anyway, I was talking to this couple. And this is, I think, the second day. And they just struck me. You know how that goes. Just somebody strikes you. And they were very, very nice. And I just said, actually in tears, I said, I'm so sorry. I, I, I can't help you. I can't do anything. Hmm. And he, and you know what his response was? That's okay. My family's alive. That was their response. Hmm. And that was the attitude of a lot of people in the camp. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were people that were angry and mad. And hmm. keep in mind, too, that you're jamming all these people into this space where you have cultures that don't necess- that are traditionally enemies. Yeah, so you have true. that on top of it too. When well, I let's go back and you're an old white guy from a country that part of most of the reason they had to leave is because of your home country's foreign policy. It was it was very very difficult difficult for me. So that, and to give you a little bit of perspective of I mean, I was there for 2 weeks and believe me, I'm not I don't want to imply that I never had fun or that I didn't enjoy time with some of these people or that the horrible situation that how bad this really was. So now back to the number of people. So I already mentioned how many boats we came in when, when I, when my uh, coordinator was there in like January or February, I think there was 7,000 people there. When we got there, there was 13,000 people by the time Shortly, not long after that, there were 17,000 people. Now, to make you understand that, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the New Holland area, but if you just take the New Holland borough, which has a, based on the census, has a population of 5,300 people. Okay, not a very big town, not small, but not big. Now, you divide New Holland into six pieces. Then you take one of those pieces and take two full-size football fields out of that piece and then stuff 17,000 people in it and see what you're going to have. It's madness. Exactly, madness. Hmm. So you, you, there were, while I was there, there were, let's see, three stabbings, two small riots. Um, fire set. 
fire was set before I got there. They almost they didn't evacuate the camp while I was there, but they almost evacuated the camp before I left. There was an electrical breakdown, and that was a mess because everybody's upset because they don't have any electricity, you know, and they're and they don't have much to begin with. So anyway, did they have something in like a <clears throat> I don't know maybe like a a jail or anything like well, that? Well, there there are security guards everywhere. Yeah. Yes, and they will they will arrest somebody yeah there was a but keep in mind too that you have all the guards were greek people were, yeah. were greek people uh and they weren't exactly happy to be there no the, the security guards yeah i can imagine so it was not a fun job for them and so they would get jaded you know as any and any i don't see how anybody that was there for more than two weeks could not be jaded after being pummeled every day, every day, every day with the same situation over and over and over again. But anyway, so um, let's see, where was I? Oh, the number of people there. So they had all these people. So as time went on, then uh, a couple of nights I got to work with, to guard one of the cordoned off areas. And I was fortunate because I got to work with uh, the young, the unaccompanied boys section. Now, and, and that's because, well, primarily because in the Guatemalan culture, and like most of this, these cultures, um, everything is very, very sex-oriented. And what I mean by that is, if you're a man, then you work with the men. Yeah. If you're a girl, you work with the girls. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's the way, it, it, that's just the way the culture is. Now, in this case, you had a lot more women there than men, and that was kind of like the exception but they had to be very careful. Nobody walked anywhere alone. You, you were not supposed to go anywhere alone. Not supposed to go anywhere alone. You know, you had to work in pairs. It was just unbelievable. So anyway, so I went to work with these with these kids. And I was probably the most enjoyable part of the time. Um, as a Christian, uh, you weren't... I think a lot of the people, 90% of the people that went over there to help were Christians. With the idea that they were going to spread the gospel, that's what that's that was their hope, you know, to yeah. spread the gospel to these people and bring them to Christ, and that's and that is ultimately the goal of what most of them went there for. The problem was that once you got there, you were informed that you could not discuss the gospel, you could not give out literature, you could not talk about Jesus, you couldn't do anything within mm -hmm. the camp. The only way you could even talk about it is if they asked you, and you better have a witness that they asked you. Yeah. So you have all that. So now you're kind of getting a little defeated in why you're there and you're struggling with what you're really accomplishing because it seems like all you're doing is walking around saying no to people and taking senses. So when I got to this boys camp, it was awesome because uh, you got to stand outside and you would, um, the boys would have to show papers to prove that they were belonged in that section. Mm -hmm. So they could not anybody, anybody under their age or over their age were not supposed to be in that cordoned off sections for obvious reasons. And um, they would stand outside and I'm an artist and I don't know, my way to communicate is when I'm in a situation like that, I whip out my sketch pad and I start drawing people. Mm -hmm. You know, I draw, draw sketches of all. So I would pull out my sketch pad and you start drawing and instantly you got 10 kids around you. I want one. Yeah. I want one. I, so, I mean, I got to do that and that was awesome. And then you, you'll get a couple of kids that will really want to talk to you and, you know, you'll get a chance to talk to them and really interact with some of the kids. And there were you know, a lot of sad stories. And 
what was even sadder about these boys is you have to understand why these boys are there. This whole group is there for one reason. They were threatened. All these people are there because they were directly threatened of, to be, of being killed, murdered. They were threatened. Their family members, men, boys, kids, were informed that their kids were going to be drafted, forced into the uh, terrorist armies. Mm. Or they just, you know, their, 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 uh, their belongings were taken away from them. They were, they were forced out of their homes. There was no good resolution. So w- what you would have is you'd have these people that have a little bit of money, but not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So what these people would do is you've got, all right, we'll take my family, for example. I have, I have two sons, a daughter, and a wife. So I would take every cent I have to send my sons out of the country to protect them. In doing that, what what you also are doing is you're saying to your boys, we're never going to see you again. Mm-hmm. And when you get there, you're going to be all by yourself. There's no there's no relatives, no friends. You're just in there with a bunch of boys. Yeah. So that's what all these boys are. Wow. So they are called unaccompanied males is what they're called. That's the designation. Wow. So anyway, so this is the group that I'm working with. And that's kind of where over the years of going to Guatemala because of being hooked up with the boys and they were young boys. That's just kind of the group that I do well with. Yeah. So anyway, so I kept doing drawings and stuff and you'd have kids that would stand in line and they, I'll come tomorrow night because I could only do so many. And that's pretty much what I did for the time I was there. I was there for, for the full two weeks. Uh, we had, I think one, we did have some time off because you looked at work late shift and you had day hours and we did get to do some little trips here and there, but um, it was, it was very, very devastating. I, I guess my, I'm going to mention this now anyway, but my wife of 42 years passed away six years ago, very, very suddenly. And this was, except for that event, the most devastating emotional experience of my entire life, bar none. Hmm. Um, It took me months to be able, well, actually what I wanted to do is I wanted to paint a portrait of this, of my vision of this camp. And I couldn't even start it. I couldn't even think about it. I just started it last week, finally. But anyway, to go on with the story. So um, you had all these kids and you just tried to help what you could. And you'd get hooked up with somebody and they would tell you their story. I mean, there's so many stories I could tell you. Um, I'll give you two. Um, so the one day I was walking, working on the census report. I'll tell you three, actually. Working the census report. And this guy came up along, um, probably about your age, okay? Very nice, very nice, clean-cut-looking young guy, you know? And uh, so he's helping me, being really, really helpful. Helpful. A lot of times, though, you'd get somebody to help you, and they'd help you for like 15 minutes, you know, two or three tenths, and then they'd disappear. This guy was with me for over an hour. And I finally said, you know, what's your name? And I, I wish I could remember his name. I don't remember anymore, but... He was, he was actually a, a pediatrician. He was a doctor. And I said, well, you know, and then he explained to me, he said that he's a doctor. You know, obviously he wasn't starving in where he was. I don't remember no. if he was from Afghanistan or not, but he wasn't starving where he was. And he came here because he was threatened. He was threatened. You know, 
It's either leave or die. Take your pick. Choice is yours. So, and then what, what was so amazing was he was just so wonderfully nice. And then I said to him, so where are you staying? And he said, well, I'm not, which brings me to the next section. I'm not staying in the camp. Why aren't you staying in the camp? Well, because I'm young and healthy and there's so many people that aren't. So I decided to stay outside the camp. Hmm. So now you also had people, hundreds, maybe even a thousand people that lived outside the camp because there wasn't enough resources to take care of them. There wasn't any place else for them to go. And they would live on whatever, dirt, cardboard, whatever they could lay their hands on. And those numbers are probably completely undocumented. How many people couldn't get in the camp? Oh, yeah. Well, everybody that comes in gets a number. But just because you have a number doesn't mean they can keep track of it. Sure. 20,000 numbers? No. You're not. And when the inventory changes every single day, every single day, it's different. Hmm. So, and anyway. So, how many, like, on average, was still like 300 a day? Something like that. Yeah. So and it just you, depends on the day and what's going on in the, in the yeah. new me- news media. Yeah. On the news media, you yeah. know, what's going on. Yeah. All of a sudden, something happens, and all of a sudden, these guys are coming in. Right. So, anyway, uh, another, uh, another instance was. Um, I had the day off because I was um, working the working the later shift, and the the kid there. You have to understand too. It's a miracle that they don't have more trouble than they do. These people are in these <laughs> little tiny tents, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, and they have absolutely nothing to do. So envision yourself stuck in that situation with nothing to do. You know, some of them had radios, some had self had burner phones, whatever. Hmm. But I mean, there there's no work, there's nothing to do but walk around. So, you know, so anyway, so they would go walk to the nearest town or whatever, which is fine. And they all get they all get like a um, food stamp card, you know, like a credit card. Hmm. So they each have an allowance, which they can spend on whatever they want. Hmm. So they're not it's not they're not totally bent on what the food that they get passed out because that would be terrible because they get very little. So anyway, so one day I was in and I had, we usually had a meeting every day because we would have to debrief and detox from the day before. And I had gone, uh, I was walking near the ocean and sat down to, to draw. And uh, these three boys probably maybe six to eight years old walked up and said, um, we're hungry. My uh, pre my preconceptions kicked in, and I'm thinking in my head, "Oh, it's a scam." I'm thinking, "Here, what are you talking about? If it's a scam, go give them food anyway." So I took them. We had this local market that we had gone to. You know, we found a place that we got homemade stuff. You yeah. know, for food and stuff because we had to. We had our own, we had to get our own meals basically. Oh, okay. We had an allowance, a food allowance, but we had to buy our own meals. They didn't give us prepared meals. Yeah. So I went to this place. Took the boys with me, and they had, these, they had some these huge hoagies, and and other things. I said, "What do you want? Well, what can we have? Get ever whatever you want." So you had these three little kids getting these huge hoagies. They were at least more, way more than twelve inches long, gigantic. Yeah. So and they got soda, and they and they instead of getting individual sodas, they got a bottle of soda. And I said, "Well, why don't you get individual one?" No, 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 no. This is less expensive to buy it this way. And then they asked the lady for cups. So then we all walked out together. I paid for everything, and they got some little snacky item. I don't remember what it was. 
So we walked a short distance that wasn't far from where we were. And uh, right next to the ocean was a, a large church. And the church had this great big um, sculptured monolith, which is, I don't know if you know what that is, but that's like a yeah. large piece of stone. It's usually flat with mm-hmm. some kind of design. Or, and this had an insignia. It was about probably eight or nine feet long and probably eight feet high. Well, I'm going back to the park bench where I was sitting on, and I'm all saying, where'd these guys go? You know, where'd these kids go? And I noticed, and I thought, but here they had gone back behind the behind this stone, and they were there eating. And, you know, I said, and I looked at my wife, I said, do you, can I take your picture, which I wasn't supposed to do? And they said, yeah, you can take our picture. So I took a couple of pictures. And what I didn't realize is I wanted the one guy to look up, and actually he had his shirt over his face. And I said, well, what's going on? <laughs> and the one kid said he's crying because he has food. Oh, wow. And I just lost it pretty much. So yeah. I, 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 they stayed back there and I left them alone. And, and then, um, let's see, the last story. And like I said, I could probably tell you 30 of them. But uh, the last night I was there, I was probably given one of the worst jobs. And that was to inventory the adult men's area. Now, this area was, I don't know, pretty big, maybe the size of a basketball court, you know? And you had, I don't know how many hundred men in there, just cots and mattress and sleeping bags everywhere, you know, with a little pathway to walk here and there. And you were supposed to, which is so ridiculous. So you're supposed to go in there with this inventory list. Now, keep in mind that they could come and go. Anybody could come in and go out of this place as long as, long as they were male, yeah. in and out all the time. So you had people that were living in tents that were in there. And you had people, you were supposed to verify that whoever was in there actually belonged in there. And if they oh. didn't belong in there, then they were told to leave. Hmm. Well, that was the most ridiculous thing you could possibly do. Because you had people in there that didn't belong in And you're now, you're also not having, you can't speak the language. You know, it just was an insane it, it was just insane. So I'm working my way back in this huge area. And most, again, same thing is happening. You know, the guys are getting really upset. They're worried that they're in trouble. You know, when I asked for their papers, you'd have to explain to them or through the interpreter why I was doing it and all, so on and so forth. You'd have to ask guys to leave and I'd walk away. And, well, I have no authority or I wouldn't begin to make somebody leave. I'm yeah. not going to make somebody leave. I can't. Even if I wanted to, I'm 70 years old. These guys are like, you know, whatever. So anyway, so as I worked my way to the back, we had the supervisor was standing out front, kind of just keeping an eye out at the front of the building. Well, I'd worked my way back pretty far, and I got back to a group of Congolese men. And I don't want to imply, I don't want to sound like I'm being prejudicial, but Congolese men, their culture is very, very, very male-dominated. Yeah, I've seen that. the men are up here and the women are down here in the basement. I mean, they have no, they're very, very, very chauvinistic. When you say, I don't know where. From like the Congo. From the Congo. Congo. Yes. And they're very, very um, inflexible, I guess is the word. Yeah. So then I was back there and I'm saying, you know, and I'm naive. I don't know who, they're all looking. All dark-skinned people. I don't know what the difference is. Some yeah. are darker than yeah. yeah. Some are dark like you. Yeah. Some are light. Some you know, are lighter, you don't yeah. know. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm talking. Not so in I, that place, no. So I start to talk to these guys. I said, um, you know, I need to see your papers. And and my guy was the kid. Two kids were th- that I'd actually known before and were you know working with me. 
a couple of times were there and they were helping me and they're telling me he needs to see your papers. And he said, and the guy says, me no speak English, you no speak Arabic. I said, I need to see your papers. Then he got really, really adamant and started hollering and they started to, the boys, I, I knew I was in trouble. I knew that I was in trouble. Did it get violent? Oh yeah. They were getting, they were getting ready to get violent. The, the guy, the supervisor at the back could see that there was trouble starting. And if it, if I hadn't had those two boys there to help me literally pretty much drag me out of there, I don't know what would have happened. I would have probably been seriously injured. Yeah, but God was there to protect me and we got out and that was fine. But I tell you what, in all my trips, I mean, I've been to inner city Guatemala, which is the most dangerous uh, slum in Latin America. You know, it's the worst slum in Latin America. I've been a lot of places and I don't necessarily follow the beaten path either. I'm not afraid to, you know, I'm not stupid, but I'm no, not but afraid to, go to venture off in a little direction or one way or the <clears> other. And I was never so scared in my entire life. I just thought, oh boy, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen here. More so than in Guatemala. Yep. Mm. And so they got me out of there and they said, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. So that was, that was my last night there. And there was just so many sad, sad, sad stories, you know, um, that um, one, one day I was, you have to, I mean, look, you can imagine how big it is. So that you have all different brands of tents. Yeah. Okay. So there's one type of tent that the company, wherever they got them from, they had these tents and it does start to get cold there. So they came, these tents came with, they sent insulating packets for these tents. So basically, it was another tent that you put inside the tent and attached as a um, heat, you know, as a cold barrier. So you would have to, you know, literally go in and tie this all up and put it together. So four of us were doing that, and um, when you did that, you had to go in, and and you got a lot of a lot of, I don't want to say objections, but people were really upset because they did not understand what you were doing. Yeah. And they and now they have to move all the get out of the tent move all their belongings into the center of the tent so that you can do this, okay? When you unwrap this tent, the tent is made for six people. So in the tent is six insulated mats to keep you warm. Six. Well, guess what? There's either eight, nine, ten yeah. people. Right. So, of course, the people are saying, well, now you have people saying, well, where are the rest of the mats? Well, there aren't any more mats. That's that's I don't I can't give you any more mats. That's all there is. I wish I could, but I can't. And then you have people in the next tent who don't have that kind of tent, and they're all bent out of shape because they're not getting an insulator packet for their tent. So you have all this. I don't know. I won't call it conflict, but it's because they're they just they're stuck and they're just trying to survive. And it's just it's and and these people have no place to go. And I know where I kind of know where Rob is going to go, but I, I want to make a point now. One, I will talk about the one good place that I did go to, because <clears throat> when I started on this journey, when I started on this journey, like I said, I, I'm an artist, I'm into art, and I do art therapy, basic pretty much when I go to these places. So I was hoping to get hooked up with an art organization that would be over there that I could maybe go back or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we did find this place. It was an awesome place owned by one couple. It was kind of like a mini strip mall that they had taken over and it had, well, the ceilings were like 20 feet high. 
and they had it set up so the kids, anyone from the refugee camp could come in there and paint. And the walls were just covered with paintings everywhere. And then they had another place which had a seamstress shop, and that was there because all these people would get clothes. It was like, I'm going to give you a triple X, you know, yeah. shirt. Well, that's going to feel really great. You know, a triple X yeah. on you. What do you wear? A medium? Yeah. Large? Something like that. Extra yeah. large, maybe. Yeah. And they, so what they would do with these people is they would alter these clothes so they had some dignity. Yeah. You know, so the clothes fit them. They had a beauty salon. And what they did is, and there were so many, they had a waiting list of people that would want to go there, of course. And then they had another place which was like set up like a, an actual store where they had the clothes with the sizes on. You know, all put together real nice and neat, hung on hangers, you know, and anyway. So what was really, and they could go in and pick clothing. You know, they were each allowed to pick so many pieces of clothing and they could come out and feel, you know, feel like normal for five seconds, you know. So um, they had people that did knitting, which would sell their knitting projects. And what was really cool about this is technically the, the refugees are not allowed to work and get paid. Because that would be taking away from the po- existing population yeah. that is trying to make a trying to make a living. So, but these artists, which were there, they would they got to determine what they would sell their paintings for, and then whatever they sold them for, they got eighty five percent of what they sold the paintings. That's for. really that's, and the that's paintings good. were absolutely amazing. And I went there two different days, and I met uh, two young, well, 15 and 16-year-old boys that were there and they were artists and they were just, they were actually cousins and they were just unbelievable. They were so talented. And the one boy and I just really hit it off. We talked, talked, they spoke English and we started talking about, (coughs) you know, artists and we all like the same stuff. You know, we all like the same artists and stuff. So we just hit it up and I ended up bringing paintings from them. I bought paintings from them, which I shouldn't have, but I did from them and brought them back to the U.S., but that was probably the most unique organization and really, really exciting part of the whole trip from the refugee standpoint. But it was just so, so frustrating because you just you just kept having to say no. Yeah. And you, you, you I mean, and a little bit of an advantage is because I was old enough to understand. I think I have enough of a sense of people at this point in my life that. I did break the rules a little bit because you'd have something that somebody would say, well, I really, really need this. And yeah. you would say, and you're, you know, like you think to yourself, they really do need this. And you yeah. would maybe bend the rules a little bit and try and help them out or whatever. Yeah. The human aspect. Yeah. To the, kick in one more story. Do you want me to stop? No, you can go as long as you want. Okay. So <clears throat> the other, the other, other night they were reassigning tents, which was part of my, one of my side duties. So, the guy that was in charge, he took me up and we went to this tent to move these people in. Well, the people come in and move in the tent. And there was, or not tent, they, they actually had some trailer units that were like um, like tractor trailer units that were subdivided into. Now, figure, figure a tractor trailer unit. This was like the creme de creme. These tractor trailers yeah. that were subdivided into like six by four spaces. Okay. You know, with and all that was in them was one electrical outlet and a clothesline. That's wow. it. So anyway. So and that there, was the mansion of the place. That was, that the, was mansion, the mansion. Yes. Yeah. Because you actually had a floor, yeah. four walls, yeah. electric. Yeah. And a clothesline. And a clothesline. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and a shelf. One shelf. 
a wire shelf. So anyway, so this couple was, the other couple had moved out because they were leaving. And this other, uh, not couple, family, and this other family is moving in. Well, they're moving in. So the, the place is empty. I had to, since I was part of a team, my job was to go in and guard the space so that nobody came in and took it wow. while it was empty. So I had to stand at the door, not let anybody <coughs> in until the people came and they came and, and, and the people go to move in. Well, then they find out that the people that were living there, because these people that moved in had had a tent. So they were being basically upgraded to this place. Hmm. So now the people that had left were leaving because they were getting their uh, <clears throat> their asylum granted and were leaving the facility to go to Athens. Well, the grandfather, because a lot of times you had multi-generations, you, your family might be, instead of what you would think, more like what you think now where a family might be sons, daughters, husbands, wives, sisters, brothers, grandparents, whatever. You know, there was, it was just all kinds of age levels. So the, apparently the grandfather had taken ill and they couldn't leave. Hmm. So now they're coming back to their facility. Even though they can't. And they can't yeah. because it's already been given to somebody else. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So a major... Yeah. So the people that were in there, of course, didn't want to give it up. You know, which you can't really blame them. No, you can't. So now we were trying to keep in mind too that we can't speak the language. Now we're trying to refugee ref uh, referee this whole thing. Yeah. And finally, after oh my gosh, I don't know, an hour maybe. I don't know if it might even been longer than that. Finally, the couple, the family that was there, gave in and left the people come back because the because they felt bad for the grandfather that was ill. Mm-hmm. got resolved but that's the kind of stuff that went on yeah. i mean that's the kind of stuff that went on don't they have a like what climate wise what is is there winters or uh it's it's a lot um when i was there it was probably in october it was probably about the same kind of weather we have here so like it's very weather. very mild though um it doesn't get the extreme temperature changes that we mm-hmm. have here but there's definitely gets cold, you know, colder in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you all you knew where you you knew that very easily because almost every single restaurant, half the tables, half the seating was outside. So you'd be you know you'd be sitting at tables outside. Very didn't rain very often. Rained very seldom. Very very dry. Well, I'm just thinking about like during the night when they're when people are trying to sleep. How cold does it get? You it gets know? chilly. It gets chilly. Yeah. It, yeah, you're not you're not comfortable, and all you're all, you know you're not. It's not like you're in a house. You're in a tent, right? Or, or out in the air. Not, on a that's what I mean. Bed. You're, you're yeah, exactly. or you may be out in the ground. Yeah, exactly. And there were plenty. Believe me, there were hundreds, thousands of people on the ground. Thousands. How, how was the place where they had you guys staying at? Well, we did. We stayed in in a small hotel okay. outside the facility. It was. Not nothing, nothing, nothing fancy. Crazy, but yeah, we had we had air conditioning and we had big kind of hot water. You have to understand when you go to Europe, hot water is generally optional. <laughs> Not like it is in the United States. In 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 Guatemala, hot water was very optional. <laughs> you had to go to a really good hotel to get <laughs> hot water constantly. So at this place, uh, as long as the people up above you hadn't used the hot water yet, you had hot water. <laughs> but I imagine you know. Uh, after being at the camp all day, yeah. 
to go back to that, you must have felt like, man, like, that must have been like heaven or something. Because, I mean, in reality, it's interesting to see, you know, uh, I was, every once in a while, I'll I'll take a look uh, on YouTube at, like, uh, Skid Row and just poverty in America. Just to keep in perspective, not to say, like, oh, I'm doing so much better than these people. I guess in reality, I am. But <clears throat> it's it's good to keep in perspective that, you know, sometimes um, it it's easy to become ungrateful for things. You have no idea. And, yeah, I imagine that that might have been maybe the maybe your bet your your greatest takeaway from that. What what do you think your what do you t- what did you take from that situation? Well, I came back and I was well. Rob knows this, but my I'm an artist, so my dream has always been to go. I mean, my number one bucket list thing was to go to Paris. That was my dream. Yeah. I mean, for as long as I can remember. So I was lucky enough, blessed enough that I could extend my trip and go to France. Well, I mean, it, it impacted my trip. When I got home, I, I mean, I, I this year for Christmas, I said I don't even feel like buying Christmas presents. Honestly, I, I just wasn't. Yeah, you weren't. You weren't your. I wouldn't say you were yourself until just recently. Uh, I mean, you, I you could just tell can't a noticeable difference. What kind of an impact this has on you personally? And you're right. You have to come back and be freaking thankful for the fact that you can have a sandwich whenever you want yeah. one. You know, if you and you don't have to. If you want to go out and buy a Coke, you can go out and buy a Coke, or you can go travel wherever you want to travel. There's, I mean, you know, there's not, nobody, well, not anywhere, but, but you understand still, what I'm saying. There's nobody coming to your house saying you either leave or die. That's right, and like, and that's, you know, you don't have to worry about whether whether your kids or your grandkids or your great grandkids are going to have a place to eat, have food in their bellies yeah. or or have a place to eat. And I'm not downplaying all the other. I, I'm not taking away from the homeless people in this country. Or, or our veterans or anything like that, but entrusted into this huge community of people all in the same situation is just absolutely devastating. I believe that. So when I came back, my wife and I talked and I said, you know, uh, again, um, I felt like I was called by God to go there. I felt like the Lord called me to go there. That was my calling to go there. I felt like with the situation of how it happened, that, that was where I was supposed to go. Mm-hmm. So I went. So I came back and it's like, I don't understand why I was supposed to be there. I, I, I don't I don't get it. You still don't get it? Well, I think I get it. But I mean, I have to, I feel compelled and I honestly, I have to say that, well, I have done something, but I, I will do something, you know, for the refugees in this country. But what I came back was, I met these two young men whose paintings I bought and my as soon as I came home, my wife is awesome. As soon as I came home, I said, I just don't know what to do with this. And she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. Because, she, of course, you know, I'm messenger messenger her every day. Yeah. You know, so she knows kind of what's going on pretty much. And she looked at me and she said, uh, the young man that I bought the painting from, his name was uh, Abdullah. He said, you want to bring Abdullah and his cousin home, don't you? And I said, yes, that's what I want to do. So that's been my struggle which rob knows i've been and try try and do that Mm. it's impossible here you want to help this is where there's going to be disagreements but our government who is who's putting on all these wars 
that put these people in this position to begin with says, screw you, you can't come to this country. I don't care. You know, and now understand too that it's a total misconception. We're not talking about 17,000 terrorists. We're not talking about 17,000 vagrants. We're talking about hardworking. To me, what's the scary part is these are we're talking about your your middle class of of those areas. Upper class or middle class. To to unfortunately be thrusted in the position where they have to make decisions. Yes. The, The people that have no money are left to die. Last story. I forgot something. This is important. So um, as we did get to do some touring of the island, you know, when we had some time off. So one of the places um, they told us we had to go was was the uh, refugee graveyard. So um, it's, hmm. it's a very isolated place. It's not what you think, at least not what you primarily think. It wasn't a graveyard for bodies. Okay. It, what it was is probably an area, a landfill, Oh, I don't know, probably bigger than two football fields, probably 30 feet high. And what was in this area was all the stuff that was left behind by the refugees as they got off the boats hmm. and you, and dead or alive. So you had like children's clothing, floats. I mean, it was just unbelievably massive. But on top of that, which struck me as odd, there were also several uh maybe a half a dozen rafts that were that had obviously been you know uh, torn or punctured yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah, they, there were so, a couple of boats that had been burned or 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 were you know were messed up probably more than a couple probably a dozen and so i said to the guy that was i said i don't, I don't get this why would the smugglers burn the boats and destroy the rafts that is their source of income yeah. You know, because they, they could just reuse it and right. then charge people all over again. So, you know, guess what the reason was? I've heard this story already. Oh, so you can't. You tell. <laughs> guess what? We'll, we'll let Will just <clears throat> take um, a guess. I mean, I don't know if they would do it to get rid of the evidence or what was it? Okay. These people were desperate. They would come and get close to the border and the people, the refugees, would destroy the boats and rafts themselves. Take a chance that they won't drown. Remember, there's thirty, probably 30 people in this group. On the hope, the hope, not the guarantee, on the hope that the Greek patrol would pick them up and take them to the island. Hmm. So, so they did it just themselves. Huh? Yes. And and guess what? A lot of them didn't, lot make, of them it. didn't make it. No. And that's how imagine. desperate they were. That they took a chance I don't even you know it was a 50-50 chance that they took an insane chance that by destroying their vessel that they were in and taking a chance on and realizing that they would drown, they would rather drown than go back. How did uh how did this how did the your time there impact you as a Christian? It made me re it made me rethink some things. I, I struggled with that and I just felt like as I mentioned before, I, I just didn't understand why I was there. And it, 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 that's always a struggle with, you know, you have to believe that I'm, I want to explain this correctly. So let me think for a second here. We're all spoiled. So yes. even though those people, you know, God has a plan. Sometimes the plan sucks. I'm sorry. But even though it's just like I said about those families that were there, you, you, you look, you would look at that family and you say, oh, my God, this is horrible. And that same family would say, yes, but we're here and we're alive. Hmm. You know, so. 
you know, I, I wish that God doesn't make all the decisions. You know, there's evil things going out there and God can't counteract all of them. So, you know, these are, but God does what he can do. And you just have to understand. When my wife passed away, she died like that in a heart attack. And let me tell you, I was, I mean, she was not sick, not anything. And she went to sleep and never woke up. Hmm. And let me tell you, for the next few months, I was pissed. I was not happy. You know, I was angry with God. I, I didn't understand it. Hmm. I, I didn't get it. You know, why, why this happened. And yet my life, and I'm not taking away from my 42 years of marriage to my wife either. I love my wife. We had three kids. We have a bunch of grandkids. Love my kids and family, but it changed my life. And I feel like I did some good things with these trips that I did that probably wouldn't have happened if my wife hadn't passed away. So maybe that was the plan. I don't know. I don't know what the plan it, is. You know, I mean, you know it, that's what happened. You know, you, know that's... you just have to, be, I mean, you just have to believe that, you know, that somewhere, you know, God gives you what you can bear. I mean, it's what I was always told. And like we had a, Rob won't remember this, but uh, I had a good friend that I went to high school with and um, we, they moved down here and we actually had kids about the same time. So they had two kids, already had two kids and uh, we had two kids and my wife and his wife were both pregnant about, about the, the same, same time. time, not intentional, but that's the way it worked yeah. out. So she gave birth first. So we, we were, it was weird because they didn't invite us up to the hospital to see the baby or, you know, we didn't hear from them and we couldn't understand what was going on. And finally, about, I don't know, a couple months later, they called and said, we want to come up to visit you. So they came up to visit us. And at that point, um, Andrew, my, my youngest son, had been born and Andrew was diagnosed with um, sudden death syndrome and almost died on, a number of times from uh, from sudden death. So. Um, we were dealing with that, and they came up and they said, "Well, their son was uh, was uh, born, and he was a uh, sorry stillborn. No, not stillborn. He was, was uh, he premature. No, he was retarded. Oh. So mentally, many mentally handicapped. Yeah. Sorry for that word, yeah. mentally handicapped. And um, you know, and so <clears throat> you know, we were there talking. And they hadn't even told their family because they didn't want want anyone to know, so that we would find out." And that would make my wife scared for our baby that wasn't born, oh. which was an amazing thing for them to do. And as we started talking about our situations, they said, well, we just felt really bad that we couldn't understand how you could handle the possibility that your son would die at any moment from sudden end of death syndrome. And we said, well, we felt bad. We felt horrible for you because of your situation. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, God gives you what you can handle. I think I believe that. I mean, I'm certainly not no Christian authority. I know I believe in God. I believe that I'm going to heaven, and you know, I, I wish I could give you some beautiful magical explanation. But you sure know, I, I deal with it. Deal with it as I can. But a good question, a yeah. reasonable question. No, I guess the. Uh, I guess I was kind of thinking along the lines of um, Islam has such a. There's a stigma attached to it. Yes, and, there is. And when you go, you know, you got the opportunity to go and be amongst a lot of people of that faith. Yes. And I think that that would do a lot of people pretty good because then you'd be able to understand that these are just people. 
just because they practice Islam doesn't mean that they're terrorists. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, I think, I mean, in general, how were you, you think you were treated other than the one part of the story you told us, but in general, because I will say, you know, you're... I was treated with respect, you know. I mean, the, you know, of course, people were upset and they would yell at you. Sure. And do it. But I mean, as far as my person goes, um, the one... Oh, I, I stopped that one story where they got the insulated tent. I didn't finish that story. Well, the next tent where the people didn't have a map, didn't have any, weren't getting an insulation. There were all these women and they didn't speak Arabic. And the guy was trying to cancel. There were like eight women living in this tent. And he was trying to interpret, and I don't think they were of the same, quite of the same dialect, so they weren't yeah. totally catching what was yeah, going on. So they're <laughs> basically all pissed off because here's this tent that's getting all these mats and this insulator, and they're getting nothing, and they don't get it, which I, I would be the same way. Yeah. So then, and then I'm pretty much in tears at that point, and talking to my, my, uh, the guy that was helping me interpret, and I just said to him, I can't even remember his name. There's so many names that I'm terrible with names. But anyway, I said to him, I said, I, I said, I, I'm in tears. I said, I, I just feel terrible. I, I can't help them. I said, I can't, you know, I said, I, this is all I have. I said, I can't, I can't help these ladies. And he turned around. He says, that's okay. I just want to thank you for what you do. You know? So that says a lot, though, if you think about it. So it's in this country, we view people from that area a yep. certain way. Yep. And we act a certain way with yep. our foreign, po- foreign policy. Yep. These people are leave a bad situation for not a great situation. Mm-hmm. And they're still thankful, mm-hmm. even to the people yes. that they may or may not think are responsible for this happening well you have to remember too that why basically we're all refugees we're all immigrants absolutely yeah yeah everybody's everybody is and what happened we quote unquote the american people came and stole this land from a culture and destroyed that culture the indians but at the same time why did we come here primarily for religious freedom yeah. So how can you sit there and, I don't know, have the gall to sit there and give somebody a hard time? Yeah. I, do I agree with the Muslim faith? I absolutely do not. Do I? But who am I, who am I to say that Muslims, they're, they're wrong, you know, in their faith? It's, it's not for me. I mean, would I like them to be Christian? Sure, I would. But at <laughs> the same time, I can't judge them. I can't. It's not fair for me to um, have a prejudiced viewpoint no. of them. And I don't know. I, I, Rob would have to. Uh, Rob would probably address this better than I would. I don't think I'm very. I, I think I'm a pretty open-minded person. I don't think I'm very. You know, I don't have a lot of prejudice. I don't think no. so. I mean, uh, I mean, I try to be very, very fair. Yeah. And, and you know, the problem with that is, if you say you're not prejudiced, you're a liar. Because that's true. You see somebody, you don't have to say a freaking word. In your head, it goes. Oh, that person's ugly. Oh, that mean, cruel, you know, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, it's whatever. It's know? whatever, you know. And you try not to do that. You're trying your best, but it's auto response, you know. And you try and, and if the best you can do is live past that, you know, which I try, which I very, which I really, really try to do. Homosexuals. Yeah. I mean, all of it, you know. What would you do? You know, you sit there and you judge, but at the same time, when... 
your son announces to you not to change the whole subject, but announces you to the homosexual, what do you do? You're gonna throw him out? You're not. You're not gonna speak to him? Well, I mean, in many cases, you know, that's um, you know, I have a cousin. It's sort of <clears throat> skirted around, but for the most part, my family understands that he's a, a homosexual and possibly, you know, bisexual, and, mm-hmm. and you know, I come from a very Christian family. Um, I'm probably the first person in generations of my family to have left the faith. Okay. And um, I watch their compassion knock up against their dogma. Yeah, I understand what, say, exactly you what you're know, saying. You know yes. what I mean? So so they, you know, they they love him. We all love him. But what he's doing is 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 against God and against uh, you know, it's against all, uh, um, it's not natural and all of these things. And it's like, well, I don't, I, I just come from the standpoint of, I don't feel like you can tell anybody who, you, who, who they're attracted to. That's like if somebody like was attracted to like, you know, redheads or blondes and you say, well, oh, you like redheads? How could you, how could you like a redhead? It's like, you can't control what a person is is attracted to in life you know but i've seen um over the course of my life you know he you know he's now he he, we can't even talk about it and he can't say it out loud and there's just a a willful ignorance about the entire situation it's an uncomfortable tension how can can you as a christian say god loves if god loves everyone right that's everyone. Sinners, non-sinners, Jews, whatever. So, I'm sorry. And this is where my my personal, where religious affiliated with doesn't agree with me. But that's okay. But, I mean, what do you do? You're, do you, did you know, do you know your, your cousin, Tyler, is gay, right? Yeah, I knew that. He came out a few years ago. And it's, again, my sisters maybe talk about it, but it's pretty much not talked about. Do you remember Mick, Heather's friend from high yeah. school? When he came out? His parents disowned him, disowned him. And how can you say, how can you call yourself a Christian and even think to do something like that? I mean, in our, in Tyler's situation, that is a tough family to be, to be gay in. Talking about like beer drinking, like. Redneck, redneck. Yeah, just, I hope he's not listening. I wouldn't say podcast. I wouldn't say redneck, but like you know, very traditional views. Yes. You know, very conservative. Yeah, very, very conservative. Uh, Thank you. His, yes. mo- his mother's been real good about it, and yeah. my sisters and I have been pretty good about it. I, I probably, but it's very hurtful um, to her though too. That yeah, it's, it's. I mean, he he moved. To, he's in San Francisco, right? Yeah. Mm. So he moved across the country. You know, I'm guessing because of. He's, the family, you he's, know, he's a very um, now he was at Christmas I don't, party. It's been a, I don't even remember the last time he's, I, I he saw was, him. he was at the Christmas party this year, which I was. Oh, was he? Yeah. Which oh. I was very surprised by. And this was just my personal observation. Yeah. I just felt like he was there and he was tolerated. Oh, that's how. But I mean, <laughs> that's funny. I, I just recently, you know, I um, I was talking to my parents and. I was just trying to be, you know, as you get older, you get a little bit more truthful with your parents. Yes. You, you start to say the things that you would hesitate to say. Mm-hmm. 
And I and I went to them and I told them honestly. I said, you know, ever since um, you know, I was like eighteen and I stopped well, and I, I no longer identified as a Christian. Okay. I watched the way that I was received in my family. I watched people um no longer consider my thoughts and things of that nature. That's and, wrong. And I say, you know, and I told them, I said, you know, I as I get older I'm starting to realize I want to be places where I'm celebrated and not simply tolerated. Exactly. Because, I mean, who wants to be in a place where you know people are looking at you sideways because they they feel you're less or something? Well, you know, and and really going with what you're telling me is, here's another point is, uh, if you're a true Christian, they would, in, in your situation, I would want to embrace you with the hope that you would return to Christianity. Yeah. But if you didn't, there's not much I can do about it. My son's not a Christian by a long shot. I wish he was, but he's not. And do I treat you any differently than I treat Andrew? A little bit. Just kidding. Don't lie. Just kidding. Just, Come on, knock it off. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's, but, but I, I, you know, I also, I, it's funny that this came up because just, just yesterday, uh, my wife, uh, she was, Actually, it was a it was an interesting story. I um, uh, I took my I took both sets of keys to work. Okay. Uh oh. So, <laughs> so I, took, I took both sets of keys to work. Not a good thing. So she she's getting a hold of me because my kids had you know they 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 had to go to school and stuff. She got a hold of me. She said, "Where's the keys?" And I, I had to go look. And uh, I told her, I said, "I got both sets." You know, <laughs> I, fortunately, I was planning on leaving early yesterday, and um. What ended up happening was, is my mother-in-law ended up taking my kids to work and, um, on the ride there, <clears throat> she kind of made a, uh, ask my wife why, pretty much why she wasn't a Christian, why she wasn't going to church and mm-hmm. things of that nature. This and is your mom or her mom? This is, this is her mom. Okay. This is my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law has, you know, she's, she's very nervous and, about the fact that her family, her husband, my wife, her her daughter, her other daughter, and her son, that none of these people are Christians. Okay. And she's very nervous about that because she said, well, they're not going to go to heaven. And yeah. she's almost kind of like terrified about this, you know, to the point, you know, it, it, it puts her in tears and things, and you know. And, you know, later on, you know, my wife told me that and. You know, she said, you know, it's just so sad that, you know, she has to 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 go through this anguish for something that she can't necessarily substantiate. Or control. Or control. She can't, you know, you can't substantiate this. You can't say that it's ultimately, it has to be something there, you know. Well, you know, if you're a Christian, of course, the obvious thing is you believe in God and you're going to go to heaven, you know, after you pass away. And so that being said, it upsets me that my grandchildren and my son are not Christians, but that, you know, I would certainly wish they were, you know, with all my heart, but I can't control that. All I can do is be as receptive as I possibly could. I mean, but at the same time, I, I, I don't think I could. You know, and I do, I do, I don't say I think about it all the time, but I do think about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I wish, I wish they were, you know, yeah. but they're not. And part of me, honestly, feels like I didn't do my job. 
as a parent because because of that. My parents feel, I think, similarly about me. They feel like I got away. And I tried to tell them. I said, you know, I didn't get away. I First of all, losing your faith is not comfortable. I'm sure it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a situation where, um, you know, most of my life, I was a Christian until I was around 18. And it was, you know, it's kind of like you have something, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you have a rock or something inside. You have something that fills up a space. And then one day there was nothing in that space Mm -hmm. and it was empty. And, you know, I had to go on like a quest of discovery to find what it was that I actually believed. Because what led me to that situation was, you know, I had to ask myself at some point in time, definitely, I took a world religions class. Okay. And when I took that world religions class, that's when I realized for the first time, I had no clue about what anybody else in the world believed. Right. I I didn't know. I didn't know. I was told to look away from that stuff. That's the devil. Don't don't look at (laughs) it. You know? And... I started going in there. I started saying, "Whoa, these are these beautiful people in the world who 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 who, who, stu- who practice different things and all that stuff." And then I said, "Well, what do you believe? Do you believe what you claim that you believe?" And eventually, I had to admit that I didn't anymore. Okay, you know. And then I said, hey, "Well, let me go find out what it is." You know, I think it's a personal thing. You know, my dad he always said, "There's as many religions as there are people." There is. Because people are, you know, they're they're always picking and choosing things. They they they, yes, they practice certain things. They don't practice other things. You know. Well, my personal philosophy is this: you know, you have Muslims, you have Hindus, you have Jewish people, you have you know Christians, you have all different religions all over the world of all different sorts, and and yet primarily and not all, not totally, but primarily. They all have one thing in common is that they believe in one spiritual figure, whether it's God or Allah or whoever or Buddha or whoever you want, to, whatever you want to call them, you know, mm. whatever, whatever, whoever that is, yeah. whoever that is. So why wouldn't it be possible that God presents himself in different forms to meet the needs of all these different people? What's funny is you said, why doesn't God do that? Yes. You're assuming that God is now the Almighty, and He's 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 in charge of all these other religions. How do we not know it's one of the other religions going the other direction? We don't know. I I'm th- just saying it's. I know what you're saying, possible? but I just think it's fun. You I, and know. I'm not saying he, he should or That's did his or whatever. Yeah. But I'm yeah, saying know, what but. he if he if he really you know it's, well no, I shouldn't say that because I don't believe that. But I mean if he's up there, I mean I do believe he's up there. He can do anything. So why couldn't he do that? I I mean, but that's you know the, those types of questions. I think when you, uh, when you really get into challenging your faith, you know what I mean. A lot of people I've I found don't want to actually challenge the faith because they don't want it to break. No, nobody wants it to. Nobody wants to ask the question that 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 breaks the camel's back. Nobody wants that, and because when you do that. It's an uncomfortable world after that. Yeah. Now, now it, it's it's you you know the comfort of oh, I, I'm saved and if something happens tomorrow then I'll be with God and my family forever. 
that goes away. And then you're left with, oh, what is it that I think is going to happen? And that's a very scary thought. Yeah, it is. Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I actually admire your, your position. I think you, you, you really have. I, I appreciate what you're telling me mm-hmm. and, and what you what you kind of, you know, evolved through. And I can understand that. I can mm-hmm. understand that. When I was, um, I come from a dysfunctional family situation. My father was a bad, was a severe alcoholic, mm-hmm. did not have what any, not that there is such thing as a normal family upbringing, but, but I did not have that. Yeah. And so we never went to, we never went to, started going to church when I was probably 12 years old and got involved with the Boy Scouts, which was associated with my church and loved it because there was a male image, which I didn't really get at home yeah. and started going to church. And as I was sitting in church for a few years and, uh, I would sit in the back and I would watch these ladies sit there and talk about gossip about all these people in church. And I'm, I finally got to the point of saying, what is this? Now, wait a minute. I'm going to church and these people are all supposed to be Christians and here, and all they do is go to church and criticize everybody else that's in the church. And at some point, I, I just stopped, you know, and it, it I, I never, never came back to Christian faith until I was 40 years old. Hmm. You know, for not the same reasons, but in a similar yeah. instances. What what is what 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 is this? You know, how can you be how can you be such a hypocrite? You know, the worst the, the and it's it's a proven fact the worst non Christian people from being Christians in most cases are Christians. Yes, yeah, that's that's you know I think well, this is <coughs> certainly different. T- we certainly went to a different direction. Well, that's, right. how this, <laughs> that's how this works. Listen. <laughs> You would be surprised if you would actually listen to podcasts. We start in one area and then we go in completely different areas most of the time. We find, uh, we find, uh, because I mean, and and while it seems unrelated, well, it is pretty, it is, it partially, you know, it, it it speaks to, okay, like you said, there was a lot of people there who had the intention of spreading the word of Jesus. Right. I guess predominantly Muslim. Yes, you know. yes, absolutely. They, they felt Muslim. like, okay, yeah. if I can get in their face and, and and be able to say, and and they can, I can influence them. But it, the thing is, is that, um, I think probably in most cases, what people would probably figure find is, is that I heard a, one of my favorite comedians. He said, he said, you ain't going out to vote a Muslim. You know, they they they're you know, these people pray five times a day and wash and all this kinds of stuff. This <laughs> this isn't this isn't um I am I'm gonna pray over my food right now and uh <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go out and do what I want and then say sorry, you know, it's not that. And um you know, I, that dynamic of um having Christians, um that like I, I think that it's it it was probably good for both sides to be able to just be around the people because it's the dogma that gets in the middle of people. Yeah, it breaks right. the people up. You yeah. know, it's, it's and, just and, human. And not to, I mean, and I don't want to mean to imply that, I mean, there were plenty of Muslims that were converted to the Christian faith. Oh, you sure. Know, there were, you know, and you can look at, I mean, if you're a Christian, you can argue, argue the Christian point, And this is going to make me sound bad. If you're a Muslim, you can argue the Muslim point. Mm-hmm. I mean, every, Religion, a, a true believer is going to argue their you know, point. It's yeah. going to believe what they believe, they and they believe have their, their religion for is the religion. They think yeah. that it's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. They think that this is it, and you can't necessarily tell them they're wrong. Ju- 
Well, no, you can't judge them based on that. No. You can offer them another perspective, yeah. another idea, an, an, another way of believing and give them the opportunity to accept that or reject that. Yeah. And if they reject it, you certainly can't say, okay, I'm not going to speak to you. I don't or you're worthless. You. Or you're, you know, Whether you're... it's in your workplace or, or whatever. I, I, I used to, I was in the flooring business for almost, for almost my entire life. And one of the things, what I did, especially at the end of last 10 or 15 years was I became kind of a ceramic tile specialist. So we ended up, um, I would end up catering to an upper scale, you know, upper scale people. We did really fancy and I would design the stuff and then sell it and then oversee the installation. And it always amazed me, just totally amazed me. Every when it, when you would have an obviously gay couple, female, male or female, mm-hmm. didn't matter what, come into the store to shop, tried very hard, and not that I was really difficult for me, but I made a point to make sure that I tried to treat them just like anyone else. Yeah, and you would not believe how when when they were treated that way, how. You could just tell how happy they were that they were like, "Wow, I'm being treated like a normal person." Mm-hmm. And now this is a, quite a while ago too, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, you could see it was obvious that they appreciated the fact that they were being treated the way they should be treated. Yeah, I mean, I can relate to that because it's like I grew up in Ephrata, and a lot of the times, um, you know, when a person, you can tell when a person. Uh, you know, definitely with this area just being, uh, you know, predominantly white, you know, you can tell when a person is going out of their way to let you know that they see your humanity. Because all too often, I had seen people on the other side of the spectrum who, in many cases, didn't want to act like I existed at all. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, it's it's important to when you know people are being uh, somewhat oppressed, and you know, if you can just show them the you know a small, small bit of humanity, you know they'll you know they they latch on to that because they don't experience that everywhere. You know, well, when I was growing up, I grew up in a small town up in uh, up above Harrisburg called Seelingsburg, very conservative mm, yeah. area, very similar dynamic to here you know a lot of mennonite and amish people you know farming community very very small very conservative and honestly i never even met a black person until i went to college that makes sense i mean i'm not saying it never i mean i'm not saying i didn't see them but you but didn't I never meet. interact yeah, yeah. interacted with one yeah and um so my first experience was there were two guys that lived next to me in the dorm who were black athletes mm-hmm. and they uh, took advantage of me we'll just let's say because yeah. i was doing really really well in school and they were not so yeah. they took advantage of that which i was which was it was okay but it wasn't the best learning experience for me huh. as an introduction to my exposure to black people or yeah the, and it I formed and, the model and, right yeah. and yeah. so so now and i can say that right now that my best friend in the world daryl jackson is black this is the reality of it. You know, once people uh, get past the stigma of having um, 
I guess, maybe a negative situation with a p- type of person. You know what I mean? Because I, 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 we all do it. We all have, you know, uh, communicated with somebody who we think represents a certain type of person. And then we're like, whoa, is that how it is with everybody who's like that? Yeah. yeah. And once you get past that and realize that that's sort of just a childish way of looking at things, you, you know, you just realize it's just people trying to live, people trying to get through life. <laughs> that's all it is at the end of the day. Rob, I'm look. I keep looking at these 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 notes you got. Well, you know, are we beyond the notes? You know, it's already like what time is it? It's like after nine o'clock. I'm not staying here till midnight. Well, usually we start at nine. Okay. <laughs> we made a special uh, yeah, well, special allowance for me time slot just, just for, you. for you because I know you you, you know you, you're in bed by now. Yeah. <laughs> So we had to make a special time Just because slot. I'm 70 doesn't mean I go to bed by uh, 9 o'clock. Well, and technically, you know, I'm not 70 yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't add <laughs> on years. Well, you know? I guess because of the, lo- the current climate of the Warhawks, you know, we got to like, part of the reason I really wanted to do this is so we can see the other side. Yeah. You know, we just assume that there's these people in the Middle East that want to kill us all. They all want to kill us, and and you know, they're That's savages, a- and you know, and yeah. like have this terrible view. And what what we things we don't understand, we just go to somebody, you know, and try and and whatever they say is the truth, right? You know, they 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 portray people in a certain fashion and then we just assume that's oh that must be true so there's all these people in the middle east they're just they, they they're muslim and they just want to kill us all and blah blah well, honestly i have to say that i mean i'm not saying that i believe that but i have to admit that part of my as I, when i went over there part of how i felt was like gee what is this going to be like i yeah. mean are they sure what what's it yeah. going to be is mm-hmm. uh, are they really going to be are they going to hate you or are they going to try and beat you? They want to kill you? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, sure. And, and when you get right down to it, going back to that is, you know, as I think about the news over the last five years, yeah, think about the number of quote unquote Muslim terrorists who have, you know, attacked people in the U.S. And then let's take the those number of instances and weigh them up against the all the random gun shootings by domestic terrorists domestic yeah, yeah americans sure. pre- predominantly actually I don't, I don't know if i can say this this may not be accurate but all white i think uh, predominantly you know, predominantly yeah stick it to this so Men. last week yeah. there was an attack on an army base right by saudi arabian i guess they were they were brought they were from saudi arabia brought here through a program and put in this in the army base and we're supposed to learn like like military operations and things like this and they uh conducted a they were going to conduct a conduct a terrorist attack on the army base and it was you know they stopped it but didn't hear about all that right because it's Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia is our buddies you know we're selling they're buying ammunition and guns mm. from us and all these things from us so we don't talk about that. So it's okay that one group of supposed, you know, Middle Eastern people do these things, but we got to take down the Iran, the supposed they t- they kill, 
the uh, the second in charge in Iran. They take him out because we don't have any evidence, but we're just going to go and go on Twitter and say that uh, he was about to attack the embassy, but we have no evidence of it. Nothing's been proven. We just say these things and everybody takes it as facts. When the, when the reality of the situation is you don't even, we, we don't even know if it was true or not. And then yeah, the, the president of our country says, we're going to, we're going to attack cultural sites so we can wipe the religion off the map, which is a war crime That's, is a war. So you're, you're president of your country is talking about committing war crimes. Now you took out multiple leaders of countries in the middle east because they conducted war crimes now your leader of your country is talking about conducting war crimes over twitter and we're just everybody's like yeah do it yeah but nobody cares like they don't think about okay how many family members how many family members or people you know that are in the military that are going to get set off to some war and going to come home in the coffin and, and these people that are all excited to, to go into this war have no family members in, in the military. They don't care. They just send other people's family members off to a war for no reason. I was looking up stats today and, like, looking up figures of, like, bombings and stuff. So, but this goes, the Afghan war is 19 years old, right? Spreads across three different administrations, Republican, Democrat, Republican. So it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. You've all been there. It doesn't matter. So you can't go say, oh, why are we here if you're a Democrat? You can't say, oh, why are we here if you're a Republican? So we spent a trillion dollars in 19 years. George W. Bush, while he was president, dropped a bomb on the Middle East every 60 minutes. So the whole time, the whole time he was president. Every 60 minutes. So every time you watch a TV show that's an hour, at the end of that show, bomb dropped in the Middle East. But wait, Obama did better. He did every 34 minutes. So halfway through your show now of an hour show, bomb drops every half hour. Oh, wait a minute. Now Trump comes in. He says before he's going to be president, oh, we're going to bring all the troops out of the Middle East. We're going to stop. We're going get to away, get away from all that. And he's dropping a bomb every 12 minutes. So we've been on this podcast for an hour and 47 minutes, almost two hours. So in those two hours... 10 bombs would be dropped. And then you have a group of refugees in a camp that are leaving a place that are having their lives destroyed, making their kids, they're they're sacrificing their lives for the children to go somewhere to get away from this. And these people are just grateful to have somewhere to go. At the same time, we won't take them in. And then, and, but we're, we're mad at them. Saying that they're they they want to you know we have this idea of them thinking that they all want to kill us or we, you know they did nine eleven blah 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 which you know whatever perspective you have about nine eleven I don't believe what happened in nine eleven is what they say it is but you know even if it is you're going to tell me a bunch of people in a cave you know with some razor blades took down uh, two towers well, you know that's the perspective you want to you want to go by that's fine but we're talking about like I, I can't remember the last time I looked it up but the population of, of, of people that are Muslim is ridiculous and even if this if there's a small fraction of there's evil people in every religion 
Absolutely. In every religion. So I just don't understand. I just don't, I don't get it. I don't, I've been told to, let's see, leave the country like three times in the last two weeks that I'm on America. I hate America. And it's like, no, I just have, I don't have an understanding why we just want to send both domestic, our soldiers from here off to fight some battle that you have no clue what's happening. There's no reason. Nobody's ever given you a reason for it. So you're going to 2,300 people. Soldiers have died in the Afghan war in in the 19 years, 2,300. And let's talk about all the soldiers that came back paralyzed, 29,000, whatever, whatever, whatever. And that doesn't include the ones that watched their, their buddies get got shot and died beside them and 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 now have mental, some kind of PSD. That's not including any of that. They're sent to veteran hospitals. They're inadequate, ill-equipped. Yep. Or just end up homeless. Why in the world should any serviceman and and just I I can honestly say that I did not I was not in the service I did not go to war and I would have probably I was blessed in, because when I was in college you had the you were protected from serving because of the because of the because of you were a college student and then when you went to the number system they had a number system and I had a very high number so I never got drafted. But I don't know what I would have done if I had. But at the same time, I respect any serviceman and any serviceman or servicewoman deserves, it should be guaranteed medical treatment and a place to live. I don't give a shit what anybody says. You know, there's so much. Go rehab rehab all the deserted houses and give them to them. I mean, that's what I was trying to do. It makes sense. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, when we think about what what we actually deal with here, you know, there's when you think about the fact that people who laid their lives on the line, believing that they were defending the country, came back here, and then the same establishment that sent them turned their back on them. It makes you question the validity of the entire structure of it all. Because, I mean, what greater sacrifice could you give than to um, try to, uh, you know, uh, lay your life down for your country? I, I mean, maybe, the, I, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like war is a, is a, is a, is a money game. Absolutely. It's, it's something, it, it, it's the game it's that people play uh that brings probably the most money to somebody's hand, and I, I, you know, I. So we spent in since two thousand to two thousand nineteen in military spending twelve point six trillion dollars. Where's that money going? You know, and that's you know, it's not going to them homeless people because I swear, if you took one of one of those trillion dollars, you can make sure that they had a place to eat, uh, a place to sleep. You know, that's the least you could do, you know, for, so it's like, what, what is the, I, when I talk to people who've been at war, nobody ever is happy. Like nobody is ever like, oh, that was, it was a great experience. Nobody is ever saying that. You know, I talked to, there's a guy I work with now, ever since I got this new job, I'm actually, I'm, I'm hoping to get him on here. But he told me he was in Desert Storm. And he said, 
What was Desert Storm? Was that Iraq? That, that Desert that, Storm. Well, I, that was I the early. That was the nineties. Yeah, it was the nineties. Yeah. Uh, I forget I exactly. Uh, you know, doesn't matter. They all run it, together. It all runs together, yeah. and that's the sad part. Yeah, exactly. But he said that he was over there, and he said, um, you know, while he was there, he feared for his life, and he thought to himself, I, you know, I when I get back, I have to make a change to my life. And he, you know, he wants to make it, he he said he wanted to make his life more meaningful. So he said when he got back, though, he said he watched TV and saw what they were reporting. And he said that they were literally just making things up. They were reporting things that didn't happen. That they were showing things that were there. He said, he said that there was really no real enemy there. Well, you know, and. What he ended up saying was, he said, ever since that day, I stopped. He doesn't own the TV. He doesn't own a cell phone. He doesn't own any of that stuff. He said, because if they can manipulate what was going on in his experience that much, he didn't want any part of it. That's interesting. The, um, it was Kuwait War. was Desert Storm. Yeah, I think that was Kuwait. Yeah, Yeah, the Afghan papers came out like last week. After saying that and kind of going back to the refugee thing, not because that's kind of my thing anyway. uh, Rob just agreed with this, but at the same time, I had to take these nine introductory classes. I wanted to ask you about that. What the preparation for? And it told you tried to try to prepare you for what you were going to run into, you know, and everything, and and trying to. educate you and change your well i can't i i change because i know that it did change your mindset about how you thought about refugees and the yeah. whole situation so one of the situations in what you hear is a lot of people complain that you know all these refugees are going to come over here and they're going to take you know or, or immigrants are going to come over here and they're going to take our jobs and you know they're going to you know, they're going to ruin the economy because they're going to take unemployment and they're not going to pay taxes and blah, blah, this and all this crap. Well, somebody, and I don't know, this, I mean, I'm just repeating what I read. So I'm not saying it's right or wrong. But yeah. this one of the statements in this journal was that if you would take all the money that it would take to legalize the immigrants that are here, take in, the refu- take in refugees, support them, get them started, Set them up, you know, so they could, with whatever they need, housing and whatever they need, take that amount of money and put that over here. Okay. All right. Now, on the other side, let's say we do the opposite. Let's say we throw all the refugees out that are not documented, not taking any refugees, not taking any undocumented immigrants, throw them all out, close the borders completely, and be done. Mm -hmm. Well, right now, the American public, as in you and I, okay, it takes the the baby boomers are gone, so actually the population is leveling out, and it takes one point, and I might be wrong a little bit off of this, one point seven people births between couples to perpetuate our society as it exists. Mm-hmm. Okay, we are currently producing at one point two, mm-hmm. so that means that. For our society to maintain the, itself the way it is at this point in time, we are short 0.5 persons, 0.5 persons on every married couple. Yeah. Where is that 0.5 person going to come from? And on top of that is, 
really. Now, <clears throat> for myself, do I want a full-time job at at $12 an hour cleaning toilets or washing cars or picking cotton or picking mushrooms or doing whatever, whatever the crap yeah. jobs are? So now, all those people that were doing those jobs are all gone. We don't have them anymore. So now, we have to pay people like you and me to do that. Well, guess what? We're not going to do that for that amount of money because we can't live on that money. Yeah. So in order to get those jobs done, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to raise the rates, the hourly rates, so they can fill those jobs. Because that's what happens. It's like, it's, it's you know, demand. You know, in order, to, in order to get you to do that, if they can't find anybody to do it, they have to pay more money. Yeah. So if you take that amount of money that it takes to raise the pay to have all these people do these jobs that nobody wants to do, that the immigrants and the refugees are doing, mm -hmm. Guess what? This amount of money is more, by far, than that amount of money. Yeah. So it would actually be cheaper and more humane to bring all these people in, get our acts together, because the politicians are the ones who are bogging everything up. They say, why, why do you want an immigrant? Why do immigrants invade this company? Well, or this country? Well, guess what? I guess if I was a refugee and desperate because my family was in you know, had been left because they were going to be murdered. Yeah. Well, you know, and then I come in and I apply for all the right paperwork and they say, well, yeah, maybe four or five years we'll get into the country. Guess what I might do? I might sneak in. Yeah. Because I have a family. By In four or five years, my son's going to be grown up. Yeah. People say that so anyway. People are always saying that. They say, do it the right way. Oh. That's why I, I, you know, I love watching. Um, sometimes I watch like Trump, uh, Trump campaign like uh, interviews and stuff. Oh, he and says some good stuff. And people are saying, people are like, like the some of the more reasonable ones to be like, I don't care if they come, but they gotta come the right way. I said, well, this country was founded on people coming here the wrong way. Like not only not not only the wrong way, but in a violent manner. That's the that's that's bred into this place, like to so so when a person's sneaking in here, that's better than them coming with guns blazing and laying down a trail of tears. That's you know that's not you know, murdering all the Indians. Yeah, you know who, that's who own the land. So you know, I think I think in reality, until they come to grips with those people, they their camp. You know, there was a one of my favorite rappers. You know, I always say this, but he said. You can't have justice on stolen land. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a great point. You know, <laughs> yeah. How can you know how how can you do that? You know, so it's like the you have the part of the, the the government that's ICE, right? They're going around and supposedly f rounding up uh, immigrants and stuff. I'm like, well, you so you have immigrants rounding up other immigrants. Does that make any sense? Yes. You have immigrants. <laughs> Except for one set of immigrants has a badge and a vest that says ICE on it. It just made me think of something. Well, we're going to go down a different alley, but we've been doing that all night. So yeah. anyway, so as I was going to Guatemala over time, in Guatemala, there are a lot of, I mean, you're lucky. This economy is so bad. You're lucky if your child goes through third grade. Mm -hmm. So let me, there's just, no education, no way for them to make a living. And Guatemala City, the slums of Guatemala City, is made up of people that in some ways are like the refugees. In there is just nothing. 
Yeah. There's no work. There's nothing for them to do. The the slums are a series of buildings that are probably well, a house might be the size of this two rooms at best. You know, and you might have five or six people living in there. And how the and I might be wrong, but this I so if I'm incorrect I might be, but the way I understand it is that that those slums, how those houses are owned, they aren't owned. What they are is they're handed down from through lineage. So your your dad would give you your house, and that's there's no mortgage, there's no but who would want one? And the and the streets are like six feet wide. You can't drive a car through it. You can only do a bike or a motorcycle or a walk. And I mean, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of these places. Well, the question is, where did these people come from? Okay. Well, these people came into Guatemala City because they were thrown off their land. <coughs> now, why were they thrown off their land? Well, the Guatemalan government, which is corrupt, pretty much, hmm. um, has been for, not that I'm a, uh, a history buff on the history of Guatemala, I'm not, but I had this actually, somebody, know somebody who was a missionary down there for 25 years. So some of this comes from him too. And so anyway, they used to all be farmers and lived out in the country, but the Guatemala government, you know, they wanted money, you know, money for, to put in their pockets. Yeah. You know, so they didn't know what to do. They didn't have any way to. So what they did is they went to Egypt, America, put America up there, way on the top of the list. America, all these foreign countries and said, you know what? We'll make you a deal. We'll give you. And America was like at the top of the list by yeah. leaps and bounds. We'll give company X, you know, like, I don't know. I can't think of names of any really huge companies, but all these huge American companies will give you a thousand acres of land free if you just come down here and build your facility here. Yeah. So guess what they did? They came down here. They kicked all those people off their land and gave it to the gave it to this to company who brought all their people down, who made all the money that didn't go to the people. That were living there, oh. and they ended up in Guatemala City in the slums because they had nowhere else to go. That's and so there is there is a lot of uh, there is some resent uh, resentment to the American people because hey, you're the ones that put us here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you go into and he explained it in a very unique way, you go into there's a huge cemetery in Guatemala, and in this cemetery is a lot of uh, a lot of wealthy, you know, where a lot of wealthy people are buried. Yeah. And you walk through the cemetery and it looks so weird because you see like all these, you'll see, a, 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 you'll see a huge monument with a pyramid, Egyptian style. You'll see a French one. You'll see this all. The, and what it is, is all these wealthy people who came in and stole the land, mm-hmm. you know, were get, well, not really stole. Well, yeah, stole it and took it from the government, gave them whatever, you know, whatever. And, they lived there and lived like kings, yeah. you know, and the and the Guatemalan people suffered for that. Yeah, I'd imagine they would. It's always the people suffering. Yes, you know the little people. It's always the people that you know don't don't have a a politician father or mother or you know. It's not like when you look at who's going to war, only the poor people are going to war. Yeah. And they certainly ain't Donald Trump's son's not going to war. I mean, oh, wait a minute. Donald Trump draft, uh, dodged a draft. I forgot about that one. 
You know, all uh, Mike Pence's son ain't going to war. Hillary Clinton's daughter ain't going to war. So who's dying in all these wars? Yeah. Sir, it's it's the poor people because they know they can they can say, well, listen, you want some money? Oh, you want a free education that's worthless? Here you go, go go fight in our our wars. You know, it's like Afghanistan is. They said there's there's one trillion dollars worth of minerals in Afghanistan. One trillion dollars. So we're not like two weeks ago. The Afghan papers came out and they said that in those Afghan papers, the report was that they lied for it to us, the public, constantly for eighteen years to nineteen years to keep us in Afghanistan for no reason. This was a a report in the Washington Post. And, you know, it's like, well, no, duh, spent one trillion dollars there. Like the one, this is the czar. This is the, the czar, the general czar of the, for the White House. This is his statement. His name was Douglas Lute. This came out of the Afghan papers. He said that during, uh, he was, he was the czar for Afghan war during Bush and Obama. Once again, Republican and Democrat. So let's not, you know, you don't want to go against each other. He said, we were devoid of fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have the, the foggiest notion of what, of what we were under, undertaking. This is the guy that's in charge of the war. So, like, I mean, it was just, like, nonsense. It's just, like, we all know what they're there for, and it has nothing to do to, of what, what we perceive it to be. And I, it's, it's the same thing in, in South America. We, we all of us are like people are mad about people coming across the border why are they coming across the border you really think people are leaving their home because and traveling across dangerous terrain and trying to avoid sex trafficking and drug cartels because we've created this system where we go and destroy countries and then people want to leave these war-torn places and come to america because they think you know they they see pictures of america and think it's great and then we get mad at them for wanting to come here when we're the reason why they want to come here doesn't even make any sense and even though and whatever whatever the reality of being in america is it's 80 million times better than where those refugees are right now i understand that that's but i think a lot of this you know at times i've been accused of like not not uh, being politically apathetic and i think a lot of this has to do with the fact that i i see that it doesn't seem to me that we have political issues we have civilizational problems our pro it's beyond a political thing it's our problem here in in whether it be america whether it be overseas wherever our problem is that we put money over people we we give people we put a amount of that a person is worth and we believe that so now when that person doesn't have anything it's okay that they're they're indisposable it's okay that they get bombed it's okay that because what did they have to contribute anyway? They were probably, you know, just vagrants. They were just, no matter where you go. They were all terrorists. You know, they're terrorists. They're, they're, there's always a term that you can drum up 
to dehumanize a person and substantiate why you think that they uh, are disposable. And that's the number one thing I see. You know, it's it doesn't matter who, what person is up there talking, what figurehead you put up there. As long as you put uh, possessions and money over the worth of life, you're going to have problems. You know, and that's, that's you know, no matter who it is that's in the presidency, no matter who it is, if somebody's king or queen, it's, all, it, it's if you look throughout history, it's the same situation. The people trying to figure out how they can alleviate themselves of uh, being oppressed. That's all I see. Here's an interesting piece of it. I don't know when. This was probably, I want to say, eight or nine years ago. I'll get closer. Oh, sorry. This was probably about eight or nine years ago. Back. Sorry about that. I'm getting a little sleepy. (laughs) Sorry about that. You got got the chair I usually get, so I do the drifting (laughs) usually, but I'm stuck here, so it's good. Anyway. So anyway, what this... What this is, it was an article, I don't know if it's in the newspaper or where it was, but anyway, there was um, this talk show invited four major company uh, CEOs, the founding companies. I think one was uh, either um, like Sam's Club, you know, the the most profitable companies. This was recently? No, this was a while ago. Oh. In the United States, Uh, you know, out of the 10, they were like in the top 10 companies in the United States. And the guy went to all these guys and say, you know, because they started from nothing. And they said, how'd you do this? You know, how did you do this? Oh, what's the, the specialty buying club, you know, here in Lancaster? I can't think of it. Not Costco. Costco's. Yes. Yeah. I think the one was Costco's, the yeah. owner of Costco's. Okay. And they said, why? What? What's your secret? You know, what? what did you do? And he said, it's really, really simple. He says, you know, people don't quit that work for you. You know, people people stay with your company for a long time. And he said, yes, I re-. well, he said, here's how I look at it. He says, every time I lose an employee, it costs me a fortune to hire a new employee, another employee to take his place and train that person. But forget about that. If you treat your employees like they are the most important thing in your business. And he said, um, I think he put it, I think the phrase was. Are you talking about Richard Branson? Richard Branson said something like that. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, he was the guy. He owns Virgin Mobile. Anyway, so it went on and said, I I treat my employees like they're royalty. And And what that gets me is they treat me like a king. It's, that's the secret that is the secret you yeah. treat people like they deserve to be treated treat your people like you would treat your own kids mm-hmm. and, and, and so the reciprocating world be, relationships what reciprocating relationships yes. yeah. and the world would be a better place and it's i think it's just that simple unfortunately well yeah but for that one corporation that did that there's 25 corporations oh absolutely that are, i'm just I mean, saying look at amazon oh yeah i'm not I, i'm not disagreeing with that yeah, at all i'm just saying, saying this is this is the kind of stuff that needs to happen and, and it's not like it's not out there it's out there there's just we're just all idiots there are all those well, no. idiots that are refusing to use it i think it believe i believe it takes a certain type of person to want to be in charge in power 
And when it comes along with that certain kind of personality, there's certain things that come with that, you know, and there's, you know, a competitive edge. They want to win and they'll any, you know, any, any, way they can. any way they can, they don't care who they have to, you know, Axe. they they have to get rid of or who, whatever, whatever pathway they got to take to get to the top. Yeah. Who, who they have know. to screw in the process. Right. I mean, you know, a certain attraction <laughs> to pers- people with personalities of power that want that stuff it's like we talked about before like you can doesn't matter what kind of government you have whether it's socialism or capitalism or whatever if you have corruption there's not much you can do so how do you get the corruption you got people that want power which leads to most of the time it's going to lead to some form of corruption some form of how do they get their way they got to get their way somehow you know and so i don't know i have to say that i was very very apprehensive about doing this we made a deal right i want the church for the first time i i like 30 years yeah what what, long time probably 35 years anyway (laughs) the deal was that i made my presentation on my trips kind of like i did tonight but in a much shorter version on my trip to greece at my church Mm -hmm. and i really wanted rob to come and hear it and he was not happy Oh, I didn't say I wasn't. Happy. Oh, I yes, just, you you just said I'm not. <laughs> I have to think about that and whether or not I would go. I said I might catch on fire. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think. That's what I think. That's what I so said. Anyway, but so anyway, but I said that to Teresa just to make me laugh. So anyway, the trade off was that he would come to church to hear me speak mm-hmm. if I would come and do this podcast, and I really was well. I didn't know what it was, and I was yeah. really reluctant to do it. Mm-hmm. And we kind of like, well, no, I was. I'm just being honest. Yeah, I uh, understand. I get it. I totally understand. So it. And, and so, we, and it kind of went by the wayside, and we didn't get to it, and we didn't get to it, we didn't get to it. So finally, we here we are getting to it. And I have to say that I really enjoyed doing this. Yeah, it's and it's, I really am impressed by this gentleman sitting in front of me. <laughs> no, I really. I, am. I appreciate. Listen, that. he's the brains of the. Of I'm the, not the. You're the brains come on of now, it. Dude. I'm the. I'm the. And, and I have to say that. I turn on the computer. And without getting into a lot of details, <laughs> my son and I haven't always been on the best of terms. We had some rough spots, didn't we? You know, it is what it that's is. A, you know, that's, some big rough spots. But that's, a, that's but I let me now let me finish though. I don't I, I I can say without any hesitation that I am so proud of him because I think he is one of the best fathers I have seen in a long time. Well, I think he does a fantastic job. That's well, a great thank you for that. Thing. I only said it because dial, I meant it. Dial it back a little. But it's true. Dial it back a little. <laughs> That's true. No. He, he, you know, he, he, well, I'm not dialing it no, back. I'm just push. telling you how I feel. <laughs> you ask. You ask. Your... I think we're getting away from the topic here. So okay. Yeah, no, well, no. Now that no, no, we, now that we said that, we're on our way out. You know. <laughs> yes, because we're I need on to, our I, way I'm, out. I'm 70 years old, and I need to go home <laughs> and go to bed. I gotta drive everybody home. You're not 70 yet. I gotta drive everybody. I know, home, I so. know, I know. <laughs> but no, that, I, I want to thank you for for coming on. You know, it was it was good to have you on, and and um, you know, to see you know you you've done a good job of raising your son. Oh well, you know, thank this you. Is, uh, you know, that's a good man right there. And uh, you know, I I, I want to. Shit's getting deep, isn't it, Rob? <laughs> I got my sneakers on. I usually have my sandals on, so I got a little more coverage than normal. But I want to thank you for 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 being uh, for being compassionate enough 
Because that's what I see. I see. I see. The, the world lacks compassion, and you were compassionate enough to take time out of your life to go somewhere that was completely alien and help people. And I, you know, that's that's an inspiration um, to me. You know, that's an inspiration I think to anybody who who, who sees the state of the world and says, "What can I do?" You went and you did something. Well, that's, to be honest with you, if I had, if I was in the financial position to do it, I would be do a lot more. Yeah. I would do a lot more. I and think I everybody started, in the room, in this room, would do a lot more if we yeah. were all in the financial position. But um, so. I, um, when I go to these, when I do these things, it, it's kind of humorous because I will be probably the closest one to my age is old enough to be my son mm. or daughter or grandchild. So I'm usually 20 years older than everyone else there. Hmm. And I mean everyone, you know, and that's, I don't know, some, some people may think that's a little weird. I think it keeps me young. Yeah. And I wish that I had um, had the opportunity or had the gumption or whatever to do this. And I'm not saying I, w- I, w- I, w- I couldn't be a <coughs> full-time missionary and go live in... Well, I can't say that either because I think, given the right set of circumstances, I would I would move to Guatemala. But I probably don't have the proper mindset to be a, a full time missionary, mm. and I'm sure there are people, including people at my church, that don't think of me as a missionary. You know, because I'm not your traditional Bible belting, yeah. you know, whatever jam it down their throat yeah. kind of Christian. But I am definitely Christian, and I believe in Christ, and I would love to convert anybody that I could, but at the same time, I feel that I do it by example. Hmm. So if I, if they see that me as a Christian hopefully lives a decent life and does something nice for these people, you know, even the fact that I'm just there with these kids makes a huge difference. And when you go back in Guatemala and you see it, and you come back for the second time, they are just like blown away because you go down there and, you know, everybody who goes down there, you know, is nicely nice and says, oh, I love you. I love you. I'll be back. And then never come back. So when you actually show up again, they They can't believe it. I I, I just don't understand why more people don't do it. And I understand the money stuff. And I don't have the money. But I'll tell you what. Well, we won't go into what how I did it the first couple of years. But the last few years, I've raised every single dime that I've needed. You know, I, I hated doing it. Absolutely it. hated doing it. Sent out letters, begged, borrowed, you know, well, I didn't borrow, begged, mm. you know, and ra- did fundraisers and raised every dime I needed. But at the same time, I'm sorry. And I, 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 in, I have to say, I'm a little, I even took, I mean, when I started doing this, I basically went by myself. I became part of this organization but I went by myself. And now this year, I couldn't go. But three people from my church that I had taken before went. Hmm. Last year, I five people went with me from my church. The year before, six people get, went with me from my church. And now this coming year, I know at least one person who's going with me from my church. You know? And so, even if I have to stop going, I feel like I've done something that will hopefully perpetuate itself down the road. That's so I feel that. like I've I wish I I wish I could do more, you know, 
And I've told my wife, who has not exactly smoked the statement, but I said, as long as I'm healthy enough to keep going, I'm going to keep going. That's so, awesome. Sounds good to me. I'm ready for bed. Hell yeah. It's bedtime. So, all right. Well, <clears throat> that's all we got. And uh, hopefully we'll start doing a little more consistency on uh, getting some more episodes out there. It's kind of hard to get hard to get people to together. Yeah, you know? it is. We got know? some busy two two people that have busy lives and then to get a third to coordinate with a third person sometimes is difficult. It can be. But I know Will's doing the uh fast breaks. So Yeah, I, I got those, those coming are, in. I, I like those. Those are you do a good job on those. I Will think I'm wearing fast break. Like yeah. he just does a little he does small segments like yeah. mini pods. I'll yeah. yeah, I'll I'll just say stuff into my phone. And, oh, okay. You know, I'll you know, I'll send it over to him and it's just you know when I have little little thoughts that you know that catch me. I think I'm gonna start doing some of my own because yeah. I think it's that'd, that'd be know. a good idea. You know, I mean, it, 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 you know, I have to think about things all week, and then like I'm like I got to put stuff together, and then it's just like I run out of time, and you know, I mean to do it on my way home from driving since I have an hour drive every day, and I just never do yeah. it. So yeah, I gotta yeah. do it. But for all of you guys who, who, who continue to listen and look for for our episodes, um, I want to thank you. Yes, for, thank you very much uh, for, for 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 checking us out and having value uh, for what we do here. All right. Good night. Later on, people. We'll see you then. Thanks. Peace. <laughs>